Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good. Hang on. <laughs> that didn't go down like it was supposed to. Okay. We're going to start over. We get to hear the music twice. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. It has been an eventful and I think difficult week at the state legislature. Many of you listeners are presumably already aware of that. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about some of those things, at least around the topics there. Um, It is just me in studio today representing um, our organization. Scott is traveling. I think he's at the airport right now, and he sends his condolences. I'm sure he's sad he's not here. Um, Joining me, though, in studio today are two um, excellent guests and co-hosts. One is our uh, in-state intern, Micah Caruso. Hello, Micah. Hello. Welcome back to the show. Uh, We also have a guest, one of Micah's professors, um, Dr. Sunshine Cowan. Hello, Dr. Cowan. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, Do you have a preference if I call you Sunshine or Dr. Cowan? Oh, please call me Sunshine. Do you have any (laughs) special nicknames I should know about? That's it. Okay. I mean, it's not a nickname, but that's all I go by. When uh, when I was an adjunct professor um, the the first time at my alma mater, uh, one of my first classes, I was only a few years out of grad school myself, and so pretty close in age Mm -hmm. to some of the students. Um, in fact, I even played indoor soccer with some of my students and was like, listen, for this semester, I'm going to not play soccer because I don't want to cross uh, any double relationships, dual relationships. But I had a student one time that I told him to call me Andy. That's fine. It's like, you know, prof more. Andy's fine. I'm not a doctor. Don't do that. And uh, one young woman one day was trying to think of my name and you could see her like, um, 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 prof, uh, prof dude. And I was like, I'm going <laughs> to draw a line there. That seems... At least pause and come up with my name. Yeah, yeah. Prof. Dude um, was maybe not not quite sufficient. Uh, and so um, you are a professor of public health? Yes. Um, tell, could you maybe just start and tell us a little bit about your background, what you teach now, or you can go where you went to school, what your areas of interest and research are? Sure. So I'm a Texas girl. And um, growing well, see, up, we're friends already. I'm oh, also from Texas. Yeah, Good. yeah. I'm Good. not from a pretty part of Texas, but I used to say <laughs> Texas, Texas all the same. Pretty. But oh, Wichita Falls, it is not pretty. That's fair. Oh, no. uh, it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I in high school, I started doing a camp for children and young adults with disabilities, and uh, it took place here in Oklahoma, uh, right outside Guthrie. And so through that, I ended up moving to Oklahoma, and I'm a product of Oklahoma higher ed. So I did my undergrad at UCO in community health. I did my MPH master's in public health at OU Health Science Center. And then I did my PhD in environmental science with a focus on environmental justice at Oklahoma State University. I now teach at UCO um, in the public health program, co-coordinate that. I'm not representing uh, UCO today. but happy to talk about things. Uh, My dissertation focus was on Hurricane Katrina and looking at the public housing controversy following Hurricane Katrina. And so where disaster management and environmental justice kind of lined up um, because the city of New Orleans went into public housing that was untouched by Katrina, no damage, no issues at all, and completely raised everything to then use this mixed income model. And um, there were a lot of advocates that said, 
it it was maybe done for different reasons than um, than than what we would hope for political reasons, perhaps. Well, and probably many reasons. Um, at the time, New Orleans had the most acreage and public housing of any city in the country. Wow! And so, you know, this was kind of a convenient way to oh. allow people who had already moved off to not move back. Right. There was a waiting list prior to Katrina. Um, that waiting list did not get touched after Katrina and people who were in housing prior to Katrina who never came back to the New Orleans area. So How fascinating. Oklahoma has some, um, I mean, a lot of ties to New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina in particular. Absolutely. Um, politically, Joe Albaugh, right, who was the director of the Department of Corrections here for several years, was FEMA director under um, under President Bush and was the man in charge to the yeah. Katrina response. Um, and so there's a, there's a really great podcast series called Floodlines. If you haven't listened to it, you, I have not. you would be really interested. Yeah. It um, it kind of chronicles the aftermath and the response to Katrina. And it is an excellent reporting, really fascinating series. And it's probably 10 or 12 or 14 episodes. So not not an uh, ongoing thing, yeah. but it was really fascinating. It's one of those that I've thought about re-listening to because it was so compelling. Yeah. Well, and so much learned during times like that about response yeah. that we need to know for future. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, they interview, you know, the the mayor of New Orleans who was like doing radio oh, programs wow. doing that. They speak with um, Director Abaugh. They have some really uh, intense kind of conversations, um, and also just with residents, right, who were displaced, who were um, lost everything. Yeah. And it really is uh, a fascinating look at how we respond to an enormous disaster and how the response can also be an enormous disaster. <laughs> Absolutely. And we do really, we do pretty good in, in the immediate mm -hmm. um, for most anything, you know, the Oklahoma standard. Yeah. We, we do really well as individuals responding individually to the immediate, but we don't have a lot of, I don't know, is it grit or resilience for, for keeping up with it long-term and then for pushing the policy right. that helps address it. Yeah. Ongoing. Yeah, we tend to have short attention spans yeah. and some of that. Yeah. Well, so now you teach, is it public health or is it community public health? health? Okay, public, public health. health. And what, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm at you know, UC as a teaching institution, so my area is health equity, um, and I do research, but when you do research at a teaching institution, it looks a little different than at a research institution. Sure. So those are embedded in coursework and research projects with students who have grants. So that's everything from photo voice projects. Um, we've given... I've done one with a student where we did disposable cameras, and I got those in the hands of people experiencing homelessness who took photos of things that were working and not working well, oh, wow. and then provided insight. We've done the same for daily riders of transportation, mm -hmm. and then got their narrative, and were able to share that with um, council members and decision makers. Um, and we've done one for zip code. I had a pretty long research study that tracked several years for a uh, local grocery store, and I'm not going to name it because it has the the ownership has changed, but we looked at the difference between zip codes in pricing, in quantity, and mm. how things were marketed, mm -hmm. and in um, strategies for getting people to buy things. And there was a marked difference. It fit what we hear about in research, mm -hmm. with there being a poverty tax that the exact same thing tends to be more expensive in poor neighborhoods. Which um, is the opposite, I think, of what most people would think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
So it, it was very enlightening, very frustrating work. And I would have students that would have this righteous anger right. about, you know, we've left one store um, in Edmond that was high end and watermelons were $4 for seedless melon. And then we go to an, a poor area in Oklahoma City, same chain, and they're selling $8.88 seeded watermelons. Wow. And when that first popped up, I said, surely y'all got that wrong. Mm -hmm. And they're sending me pictures that they've taken 20 minutes apart mm -hmm. because they were furious yeah. for good reason, right? right? So um, that went on for quite a bit of just monitoring and seeing how those things go. Yeah, that's fascinating. What made you interested in public health in the beginning? You know, I think probably had, I ended up at UCO, kind of oh, a windy path, ended up at UCO. Had they had social work? That probably, I probably would have done social work. Uh -huh. And I had a good friend who said, I've taken, it was community health at the time, I've taken this intro class. I, I found this major. I think you would like it. And so I took one class and was hooked. And so it's very much a discovery degree. Very few high school students or even early college have any idea about public health. We say when it's working, it's invisible. You go to your favorite restaurant, you don't get sick. Your kids go to the swimming pool, everything's fine. Right. Um, you don't have a major world pandemic <laughs> if everything's working well. Right. And it's when things go wrong that we tend to hear about public health. Right. Yeah, we yeah. take it for granted. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. Um, because in general, if we can keep the public healthy, then most of these things don't ever come up, right? We never think about where our water comes from the air we breathe exactly how you know any of that stuff happened the restaurants are right. um have clean cleanliness requirements and yeah. standards right we all see the sticker in the bathroom that says employees must wash hands yes and just think that's silly isn't it obvious and you're like no no let's look at the history here and right. this was a relatively new invention in the history of humanity yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. and then you know things like sidewalks and making cities more walkable and funding public transportation and funding public education and and all of those things that from a public health framework it's just a different way of looking at things on how do we look at non-medical determinants of health so things that aren't related to medicine but absolutely impact how healthy we are yeah and education zip code all of those things around us in our environment that we tend to think, at least in our society, we tend to think of it on an individualistic level, mm -hmm. but there's really so much in the background that public health professionals are looking at to say, how can we make this better so that everybody has an equal opportunity to be healthy? Yeah. Man, you know, this, this reminds me of something that I haven't thought about in years, um, and I don't think would fly in today's climate, and we'll probably talk about a little bit why. Uh, but when Mayor McCornett was in office, right, we, Oklahoma City famously was, this city is going on a diet. Yes. And it was like a nationally known deal that Oklahoma City was rated as one of the most obese cities in America. Yes. And he launched an initiative to promote a healthy lifestyle, activity, all that stuff. And I remember I was it wasn't long after I moved here, and it was a big deal. Um, and it, even today, it seems almost bizarre to have a citywide initiative dedicated to health in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it was a great first step. I also think that again, when we go back to that public health infrastructure, we're looking at things of um, a phrase we use a lot is make the healthy choice, the easy choice. Mm -hmm. So it has to be more than standing on our soapbox and wagging our finger and saying, this is what you should and shouldn't do. There's a, um, research study that's titled 
rich people rich people exercise, poor people take diet pills. Oh. Right? When you think about leisure time, mm-hmm. you think about um, access to resources. And so back to those having walkable communities, having um, access to healthy food that's affordable, that's mm-hmm. marketed to you. You know, back to that grocery store study, um, my students walked in, same chain, they walked into a store um, on one of their observational visits and the deal that they were running was you bought a bunch of bananas and you got a free two liter Pepsi mm-hmm. with your purchase. Well, they're not running those kind of ads in middle income and mm. upper income neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They're just selling bananas there and they're selling them for a cheaper price. But in their poor neighborhoods, that's exactly how they were selling bananas. And so those kinds of marketing strategies where we're not making the healthy choice the easy choice or we have the dollar menus that right? They are um, really affordable and really convenient on the front end. Mm -hmm. We pay for them on the long end. Mm -hmm. But depending on our income and educational level and access, uh, sometimes it's the best that people can do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a a good grilled chicken chicken sandwich at any fast food restaurant is one of the most expensive things on the menu, right? Yes. Um, Or a salad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's so fascinating. I saw a study several years ago about... um, the ambient temperatures in urban areas, and I think it was specifically in New York City, um, so areas with more trees, more um, green space, had you know lower air temperatures because yeah. shade and you know just plant involvement in the ecosystem there, and those tended to be higher income areas. And if you are in Oklahoma City, right, if you drive in East Edmond and then go south into northeastern Oklahoma City. There's a stark difference in tree cover Absolutely. Um, as you travel that and that the northeast side of town, aside from being, you know, totally decimated by in, interstate infrastructure and um, disinvestment for years, yeah. um, has very few trees. Um, and because they were bulldozed back in the day to build yeah. all these houses um, and that raises the ambient temperature, that increases noise, all these things that are stressors in the environment um, that have uh, kind of a knock-on effects to poor health that we don't, we may not feel or experience or even notice in the short term, but when you take a large sample in a longitudinal over time way, you start to realize like, oh, these are long-term system-wide, I say problems, right? I guess others might say strategies um, to to affect a population in a certain way. Um, So that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You know, we talk about how all policies, all policies that affect health are health policies, even if they're housing, transportation, if, if they affect health, mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, they're, they're health policies. And so, so many of our inequities are the direct result of either a policy that's been in place or the absence of a policy that's needed. I think yeah. it's a perfect example. I, and this is probably getting in the conversation. And Mike, I'm going to ask you a question in just a second. But mm-hmm. I, I, it strikes me that even the current conversations in our state legislature about, well, this week about library books, like what books libraries can have or can't have. Um, I mean, very quickly, when when the law, the proposed law says it can't have any books of you know a sexual nature, right? Everyone starts thinking of books like, well, the Bible, of course, but also like health textbooks. And so, you know, the bill is not yet law. We don't know how it would be implemented. But I don't think it takes a big stretch to imagine a world where um, books that contain health information, and that includes gender, right? Those kind of things are 
not allowed, that lowers the health literacy level of, a, of the community. And Oklahoma already doesn't have a super high health literacy level compared to other states. Uh, and so a lack of access to just raw information that is helpful and you know educational um, does have long-term effects on, on people's understanding of these things. And I- Absolutely. I, a story- I've probably shared this on the podcast in the past. So if you've been a listener for a few years, you may have heard this before, but I used to work in public health. I used to run an HIV clinic here in Oklahoma City. And we did a lot of uh, sexual health education around the state. And I remember doing a presentation for Cherokee Nation out in Tahlequah with a bunch of community health nurses and some doctors out there. And one of the presentations I did frequently was about adolescence and sexual health education. And I related a story of our, of our health educator who is at a high school here in Oklahoma City. And, you know, she would ask for questions from the audience. And a student submitted a question that said, basically, like, I heard that if you douche with, um, like, Mountain Dew, Pepper. Yeah, yeah. That, that it'll kill the sperm and you can't get pregnant if you do it after sex, right? right. And, which sounds s- sticky and, gr- and gross and um and I, so I shared this story as like, you know, a lot of adolescents don't have the right health information. Right. And one of the guys in the audience was a doctor or a nurse. Um, they, everyone kind of chuckled and he said, oh yeah, well, back when I was in high school in the sixties, it was Dr. Pepper. We all kept a six pack in the back of our, you know, Chevy Malibu. And I was like, ha ha, that means someone didn't tell their kids this information correctly in the last 50 years, right? Like right. if if we are still perpetuating the same incorrect health information 50 years later, it means that we've missed the boat, right? Yes. So it it is funny to think about that being a belief in the 1960s. It is not as funny to think about that as a belief in the 2010s, right? Right. And, and so we have to make a concerted effort like we should try to always be smarter like we as a con- culture as a nation as a world should seek more knowledge and better understanding of things okay i'm on a soapbox Absolutely. <laughs> no it, it's a good soapbox <laughs> um also don't 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 douche with soda i don't know Ugh. listeners if anyone's thinking that sounds a good idea it's not a good idea for it's a yeast infection waiting to happen all oh, right yeah Anyway, we're okay. We're not going to go down that road. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. I know some of our younger folks Sorry. are now going public to public health. I public mean, health. You know. We have no filter. Yeah, I, we have a few, uh, uh, you know, younger students who are now going to ask their parents what that word means. Um, so, parents, you're welcome for that. Now, uh, Micah, you are in a class with Dr. Cowan this semester. No, actually, this is my first semester where I haven't had a class with her and. That's part of the reason why I was like, huh, who can I have talk? I'll have Dr. <laughs> Cowan come talk. So it's not for you. extra credit is what you're saying. No, right? it's not yeah. for extra credit. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, tell us a little bit about your kind of experience and maybe one of the things if the, I, I, I know from talking, you have an experience from her class that has really stood out to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My story for getting into public health is very similar to Dr. Cowan's. Um, I was supposed to be in nursing school, but I got waitlisted for many schools. And in order to stay at UCO, I had to pick up a minor. And one of my first classes that I had was um, Introduction to Public Health, which with Dr. Cowan. Um, And it was fascinating. And so I decided to stick with the program. But the class that really made me figure out, oh, this is very different from anything else I learned was her health equity class. Because she, the first thing 
that she showed us was a video um, called The Dangers of a Single Story by, and the, the speaker, I cannot pronounce their name correctly. Mm-hmm. I have looked it up. Chimamanda Adichie. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I spent like maybe three hours last night trying to say yeah. it right. And then my roommate <laughs> was just like, you know what? Just let her say it. She probably knows how. Um, called The Dangers of a Single Story. And I had never seen the world like that. And it really made me because I like to consider myself a lifelong learner. And that was the moment when I realized that my education, for lack of a better word, had been very restricted to only one viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And I saw how terrible that made the rest of the world. And so I was like, I I don't want to learn like this anymore. I don't want to see the world like this anymore. I want to learn more. And then I think... Very soon after that class, I was like, Dr. Cowan, I want to change my major. <laughs> I was like, let, let me in. I want to be a part of this. It's, it's fantastic. But yeah, the information, going back to what you said about like the health books, mm-hmm. I remember in another teacher's class, uh, Dr. Morgan, uh, her class was Healthy Aspects of Sexuality. And it was the first textbook I had ever seen where people looked like me, which is ridiculous for me to say because I'm a white, straight Christian woman. Mm-hmm. So you'd think that I would see myself and say, but like somebody who wasn't stick thin, sure, who had like rolls and cellulite, and they talked about health issues that I was going through. And I thought that was so interesting. But then it also had like pictures of people who definitely did not look like me, which was even more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I told other people about that. And like, they were like, oh, I do- we don't even have sex education books inside my school like what do you mean <laughs> why don't you and one of my friends sent me a post last night that um that somebody a high school student told gansbury the school board i'm not going to sit here and talk about the slippery slope that book banning leads to because i learned from a book that i checked out from my school's library that i don't need to resort to logical fallacy to make a point i'm simply going to say that no government and public school is an extension of government that has ever banned books and banned information from its public has ever been remembered in history as good guys. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great story. And um, now you both have used a word that we hear around in politics occasionally: equity, mm-hmm. right? Which, uh, in some circles, I think has become a bit of a not maybe not a bad word, but like um, an indicator, right? That if someone uses the word equity. They're probably a liberal, which is <laughs> weird in some ways, right? It that is. we have partisanized some words like that. Um, and, you know, another word that we hear a lot uh, is the word woke, right? We mm-hmm. hear that um, super state superintendent Ryan Walters says it, I think, frequently. It's one of his go-to words. It reminds me of me saying dude when I was in high school. Right? Everything was dude. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my schoolmates have a drinking game every single time they read. They had to change the rules, because they got for a public sick. health reason. For a public health <laughs> reason, they're like every single time this person says "woke," right? We're gonna take a shot of something. Nope. And then like halfway, not even like just sometimes reading the headings. Yeah. They were like, "We gotta stop. This is bad." Yeah. No, that's um, that's a good way to end up with uh, mm-hmm. hepatitis uh, or you know liver failure. <laughs> but let's uh, on all seriousness, let's talk about the word mm-hmm. woke. Um, Dr. Cowan, I know you've done a little bit of history into the etymology of the word woke. Was that a fair statement? Well, yeah, I <laughs> I I knew we were going to be talking about this, so I 
I had to do some digging, um, and I found Michael Harriet. He's an author who's researched it. And in his research, he found it used as early as the 1920s. In the same way, like used? Well, always used in the black community early on and um, used as awareness. So awareness of racism, awareness um, to to be to be careful, to be aware um, early on. So 1938, um, he talks about it. A blue song. It's a true story. Four black youth in Alabama falsely accused of raping a white woman, convicted by an all-white jury. Thankfully, in appeals, that was overturned. Um, but this Alabama blues song uses the phrase woke. It talks about be careful when you travel there. Stay woke. Keep your eyes open. Mm. And then in 1940, Harriet finds a reference to black mine workers in West Virginia. They had unionized. They were fighting for better pay because they were not making the same as their white counterparts. And um, out of their action and advocacy, their phrase was, we were asleep, but we will stay woke from now on. Mm-hmm. And so it, it had this connotation of being asleep, waking up, being aware, being careful. It then went away for a while. And it was... Erica Badu, I don't know if I'm yeah. saying yeah, Badu the correct. Uh-huh. Yes, 2008. So her her track master teacher mm-hmm. used the phrase "woke," but they really credit it with tweets that she did, mm-hmm. and that that was kind of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, to me, was what was so striking. Harriet, in this article, says for a very long time we've had he calls it a takeover and flipping a black vernacular mm-hmm. to anti-black pejorative. Mm. And he says this has happened again and again through history. We see it with jive early on, right? Mm -hmm. And then he has this quote. This is his direct quote. Every time black people try to use a phrase or coin a phrase that symbolizes their desire for liberation, it will eventually become a cuss word to white people. Oh, that's fascinating. Powerful, right? Um, Because early on in 2008, when the term was being used, there was not a pejorative use of it, mm-hmm. but we've seen that transition pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So just to, let me reflect back to make sure yeah. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Um, <laughs> that, so like the word woke starts out as like, um, what, what it seems on the surface, like awoke, awoken, um, and yeah. thus aware of something, right. Yeah. Of, of a deeper truth or meaning or yeah. purpose or whatever, um, aware of what's happening in the world. And it's specifically being used that way in the black community. Um, and then I think kind of spreads more broadly to, I, I would assume, right, to like white communities also being woke in the same way. It's like being aware of racism and things and being um, trying to pay attention and, and being intentional about that and just being aware yes. of it. And then through that gets flipped around to saying, to like being used bad. So basically a, well, I guess on the, on the, to boil it down, right? A black person who is aware of what's happening in the world is woke, and that is a bad thing, is how it's framed in, yeah. by some people or communities. Yeah. That's like an overtly racist thing to say. I mean, mm-hmm. to say like it's bad for, for anybody, to, especially like a specific race, yeah. to be aware of what's happening to them. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a closet Erica Badu fan as well. Um, so <laughs> that's, I was excited for you to, to mention that. It's um, a fun find. How how does this 
so how do you see this through that public health lens? Like how does this affect, um, how could it affect, how does it affect, you know, our communities, our culture through that lens? Yeah, so, you know, back to what Micah was talking about with that danger of a single story. Um, Adichie tells us in that the danger of looking at any group through a single lens. Mm -hmm. And when we use stereotype, we, um, those groups, we take away their dignity um, for any group where we just simply apply a flattened single story for who they are. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we see that in how we apply this idea of woke, being anti-woke in legislation. Um, for public health, we are always focused on, oh, I can't say that. For public health, <laughs> <laughs> the goal is that we are always focused at putting the community at the center. Does mm -hmm. it happen always? No. Um, should anything ever be done to a community rather than with a community? Never, right? Mm -hmm. And so our soapbox with our students is that those com the community members are the expert of their community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And public health practitioners can come in with skills and models and framework, but we're not the expert of a community we don't belong to. Sure. We have to sit down and work with that community. And so I think consequences of these type of legislative bills are just further marginalizing communities that are marginalized to begin with. And then we further take out this context of understanding. If we are not learning, we have to know history in order to, to understand context. I, you know, one of the things that we talk about in class is looking at World War II. After World War II, FHA loans come in from the federal government. We build a middle class from that. Mm -hmm. Those FHA loans were only available to white families, mm. right? So people of color, communities of color got totally left behind in that. And I think there are some people who would shrug their shoulders and say, well, yeah, that was so long ago, right? We're talking World War II. But families like mine, who were poor white families, it was an opportunity to take advantage of FHA loans and to start home ownership. And for the middle class for so long, it's debatable today, right? But for so long, that's how middle class built a nest egg and mm -hmm. built up equity and had something to pass down to the next generation. So when we see this disproportionate outcome today, between wealth in black populations and white populations, we need to know our history and, and understand the context to be able to understand that that didn't happen overnight. It's not new. It's not the fault of the individuals who were born into families that didn't have equity to pass forward, that that started with policy. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely purposefully um, exclusive of anyone who wasn't white. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I don't have any data to back this up, but I would wager, my hunch is, that many Americans, particularly white Americans, think that, or believe that, you know, there was slavery in the United States, right? And then there was a civil war and the Emancipation Proclamation and slavery ended and we fought about it. But the union won and it was over. And then it's been a straight 
upward trajectory for the yeah. black community, mm-hmm. and that is not the case. And I will admit, I I don't think that I fully appreciated that until the last I don't know ten years, right? That after you know we had Reconstruction, which the name kind of implies like what's happening, right? Like there's um, some improvement, um, not rapid, right? But measurable, it's mm-hmm. there. But then you get up into uh, you know the early 20th century, and you and then the passage of Jim Crow laws. And I don't think I really understood. Like I heard that term, but I was like, sure. People would say, "Well, it's a new Jim Crow," and I was like, "Okay, I know you mean that's a bad thing, but I don't know what that means." That's just a character inside of a Disney show, Dumbo. Right? Yeah. But now, like when you when you start to realize, like, oh no, white people passed laws intentionally mm-hmm. to disenfranchise black individuals in all kinds of ways, right? Um, open, overt racial division right from schools and water fountains and buses and everything else and that wasn't that long ago right um to go back to my comment or my story a minute ago right when that same gentleman was believed that dr pepper was a uh you know prophylaxis prophylaxis um that was also at a time that like the white community was openly discriminating against the black community in like and I say openly, not that, not that it doesn't happen openly today, but like what we would still consider egregious ways, right? right. Like it wasn't that long ago as when mm-hmm. my parents were kids. Right. Um, we're only a generation or two from that, which I think many people assume is like 200 years ago. And like, mm-hmm. that's not the case. That is still a recent history. Um, in fact, you know, for listeners who are about my age, like I'll be 43 this month. Wait, 42 this month. <laughs> um, I'll be 42 this month. And so, like, as a kid, growing up in the 80s and 90s, the 1960s, you know, my parents talk about Mm -hmm. that. Well, that's like me today talking to my kids about the 90s. Right. It's not that long ago. Right. Mm -hmm. It's nuts to me that me telling my kids about Nirvana, it's like my dad telling me about the Beatles. Yeah. I'm, like, thinking, that's just not, you can't. That doesn't compute. Right. Mm -hmm. But that is how it was. Absolutely. You know, my hope is that um, our society does continue a, a forward progress, but we need to. Watch out because there are there. I I would contend there are forces in the world, in our country, in our state that want to not just inhibit but like roll back that progress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I just got through attending a, co- a conference in Alabama. Uh, my husband is also a faculty member, and we each had separate presentations. So we thought, you know what, we're going to pull the kids out of school. We'll drive and take the kids. We're going to turn it into an educational trip. Yeah. So Birmingham, we got out, we walked, we went to the park of the 1965 boycotts mm-hmm. where 600 kids come out um, with the adults who are boycotting. And there is the water cannons, the dogs, right? 600 kids are jailed. A thousand kids come back out the next day. More are jailed. Horrific, horrific abuses. We took time walking through this memorial in this park, and it was heavy. My kids are 11 mm-hmm. and 13. We, we get through it all, and it's like, okay, let's go do something light, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted them to experience that. And uh, on the way home, I asked them each individually, what was, your, what was your favorite thing about Alabama? We did several things, right? That was the heaviest. Both of them individually said, you know, it wasn't fun. But I'm really glad we went to that park. I'm mm-hmm. really glad that we read about and saw and learned about what happened. And what we talked about as a family is not all, 
Some of those things have improved, but we need to learn about it. Why, why do we learn about this, right? My 11-year-old's saying, well, so it doesn't get repeated. And I'm like, yes, but we need to broaden that out, right? Not just that it doesn't get repeated for the black community, mm-hmm. but let's talk about what's happening with legislation for people who are trans right now. And so we had that mm-hmm. discussion about mm-hmm. our state and you know, being able to take these lessons learning the context so that we can then understand when we see it happening again with another group that's mm-hmm. marginalized. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I I really had like a spiritual awakening whenever I started learning real history. Um, like there there is a phenomenal museum that I only got to go to because you had us go to it for one of your classes, the First Americans Museum. Yeah. And I remember there were multiple things in there like when they mentioned it at first, I was like, oh, I learned about this in high school. I know this. And then they said it. I was like, I did <laughs> not know this. Okay. I got the Spark Notes, the white Spark Notes version. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's terrifying to me because it goes back to that dangers of a single story. The people who have power, they can make a story. They can choose one part of it. And that becomes the only part that an entire generation knows about. So when I was going through that museum and I was seeing the other side of the story for the first time, the indignant rage and helplessness that I felt because Mm -hmm. helplessness because I was like, well, what the heck do I do with this now? Because now I have to relearn everything Mm -hmm. that I was supposed to have learned the first time. And also... It just kind of goes back to not only is history important, but words are important. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that scares me the most about this anti-woke thing. Because every single time I read about it, it's never so much talking about woke as in, like you said, it came from like being woke of what's going on in the world around us for individuals who are black. The words that they're talking about that they're calling woke are not necessarily racial. It's a lot of like, like somebody, you told me yourself that like they were taking out history lessons about NASA. Mm-hmm. I was like, NASA isn't, wait, that has nothing to do with what, what do you know? And I asked, I was talking to one of my uh, lawmakers, I'm not going to say who, mm-hmm. um, and I asked them, I was like, why are you so against woke culture? And it, it, was, it was one of those moments where you kind of had to listen and I wish there was subtitles because I wish I could go through and review what this person said because it was interesting. I'm just going to use that word, interesting. Um, They said we need, we can't uh, learn from history if we don't learn history. I was like, yes. So why are you taking out this? And they said, well, because this, because like we have to protect our kids from these bits. I was like, you just said in order to learn from history, we have to learn history is that when you say history, do you just mean the history that you like? Right, right. And it was it was a long conversation in which I think I lost some of my intelligence points. Um, I think, I mean, there is a, a growing movement mm-hmm. to teach the truth, right, and to seek that. And obviously, um, you know, capital T, truth, is a little bit slippery, right? Oh, it's, gosh, it is yeah. still It's not a little bit slippery. Yeah. Um, and I, but I think a... You know, I'm a big fan of like Stoic philosophy, and so the obstacle is the way, right? Is like a core tenet of Stoic philosophy, and 
I think the recognition that that none of us have arrived at truth, but oh, we God. are we are committed to the process mm-hmm. of trying to uncover, to wrestle with, to understand all aspects of our history, mm-hmm. the good, the bad, the ugly, the hurtful, um, and to celebrate what deserves to be celebrated, to mm-hmm. mourn what deserves to be Absolutely. mourned, and to have a shared, a united commitment to do better mm-hmm. as we move forward. Yeah. And I think that's the most important part. I I start off these conversations and I was frankly a little nervous to do this today because <laughs> to talk about this in an hour, right, we spend a full semester mm-hmm. digging into this because it is a process of first saying there is no such thing as arrived, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I haven't I haven't arrived. None of us have arrived. And if we get to the point where we think we have, we we probably need to do a long, hard look, right? Mm-hmm. That as lifelong learners, we're continually unlearning and relearning. Mm-hmm. And that there is so much to process in the unlearning and relearning. And it's constant. Mm-hmm. I um, The last health equity class I taught this, this past fall, we watched a video of a black woman um, referring to her daughter's hair as dreadlocks. And then I was asking a follow-up question on that. Black young woman in my class raises her hand and says, Dr. Cowan, may I make a point about that? And I said, absolutely. And she said, I want to share with you as someone from the natural hair community, we have updated our language to not say mm-hmm. dreads anymore mm-hmm. or dreadlocks, mm-hmm. but to say locks mm-hmm. because of the connotation dread has with dreadful. Thank you so very much for letting me know that. I'll update my language right. now, mm-hmm. right. Right? right? And that instead of getting defensive about mm-hmm. what we don't know, this, mm-hmm. you know, working to stay open to say, I can't possibly know it all. And things change and evolve. Mm-hmm. And so making the commitment to that lifelong learning and uh, yeah. what do we need to know? Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of folks, it can be unsettling when things change. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> and so, um, but I also think that there is some power in committing to accept that things are always changing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, not to get super wonky here, but like another Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, right, said that uh, no man steps in the same river twice, meaning that yeah. the river is always moving. And the moment you step into it, it has changed. Um, it is a different river than it was before you stepped into it. And so um, I think that is the case with life. And so many things that things are going to change. And the more readily we accept that things are always changing, then the the little easier, a little bit easier it is to continue moving forward and to know that that you will never arrive. That right. the mm-hmm. work is always continuing, right? Yeah. That that woke is not an endpoint to go back yeah. to that word, right? That we are in the process of awakening um, ourselves and hopefully collectively as a community, as a as a culture. And that um, I think and you could probably speak to this, but I you know, some of my friends that are more liberal, um, will express a frustration or a hesitancy to admit when they are not, we'll say fully woke because with the recognition that that's not a thing, but that, that they are not where they want to be, but they're afraid of being attacked by someone who will say you're not woke, right? Like that, then it is used as a derogatory, even within a community that would regard themselves as woke. Right. So it's like a, an in-group bias. (laughs) Um, and I don't know, that's my observation. I'll pass it to you. Yeah. I think, I think that's very much, uh, an issue. Right. And I, I think 
I think of it as my desire to want to be a good ally, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. want to be anti-racist. Um, I don't go around calling myself an ally. It's not for me to Mm-mm. call myself that. Um, and, you know, if we if we read the research about being anti-racist, um, those are moment-by-moment decisions that we make, right? And it it is possible for me to be anti-racist in one moment and racist mm-hmm. in the next. Right. And we really have to let go of this defensiveness. Um, but I think as white people, right, we, we've grown up in a society where the worst thing we can be called is a racist mm-hmm. because we understand that from some, such a different viewpoint than what it means in the day-to-day mm-hmm. of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And um, we get all up in our feelings about it and then the guilt which is not helpful to anyone, mm-hmm. instead of just being able to say, I probably need to pull myself back. I need to process this a bit. I need to see what it is I need to learn and then what I can do differently to mm-hmm. repair this and, and move forward. Um, but yeah, I think we've got it on all sides <laughs> as far <laughs> as um, how we address these issues mm-hmm. and their emotional issues. So uh, I guess it's no surprise that we fumble with it so much mm-hmm. yeah i had a I, I babysit and i have a somebody who i probably shouldn't be babysitting because they're old enough to drive probably um but <laughs> they were upset because there's been there was something that happened at their school where a teacher said if you were raised white you are inherently racist and i do agree with that but uh they said everybody got very very upset about it um because he was saying all of you guys are just racist and horrible and i said how do you feel about that um and obvious i say that he was he's older because obviously i wouldn't have this conversation with a three-year-old um he was like well he's like i don't i don't i don't think he should have said that because it's it's mean and we're not racist I said, do, do you know what race is like, can you define race for me? And it was because that was something that I learned that like race is a social construct that we've come up with. And that conversation with him, like I could tell that his brain was was working on all ends. Uh, and he told me something that I say all the time is I went to a bed with a headache last night. He said, I went to bed with a headache last night because of our mm-hmm. conversation. But the way that he... Um, learning that new language and learning that new change and constantly improving it just brings people closer together and i think that's something that's why a lot of people are afraid of that woke word Mm -hmm. is because we have a lot more in common than we have that are different and when people figure that out they can work together better so I guess like one of the biggest things that I wanted to ask you was why do you think people are so afraid of these changes of the word woke and words similar to woke? Yeah, you know, I think Andy said it earlier on. So many people are just afraid of change to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then when we have an ever-changing society where people are afraid of losing power and mm-hmm. If your lens is about resources and scarcity and limited resources, and then if everybody having equal footing somehow means I have less, I I think that's a driving force for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I also think um, 
I pause. This, you know, this is what I like <laughs> about having 16 weeks to have this discussion. We don't have yes. this discussion in night one. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. We have this discussion eight weeks in after we all are right have gotten into mm. lots of readings. And usually, you give us a disclaimer like, "Be ready," because next week you're yeah, just you're going to be, be heavy, <laughs> right? Um, but I also feel like to do my part to be anti-racist as a white woman, mm-hmm. like calling it what it is, and so. We're in a society that absolutely was founded in white supremacy. Oh, gosh. Set up that way from the get-go. And so these kinds of changes that we're seeing make people really nervous. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a loss of power, and it's tied so much to the fabric of our society, more so than I think we would like to admit. Um, I also so I think it don't makes think us that's feel a popular like statement, but it's a true mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah. I, um, my grandparents, uh, both grew up in East Texas, um, and, uh, The pretty part of Texas. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they had different lives growing up and I don't know a ton about it. They both have since passed, but my grandmother grew up where her father owned the general store in their little mm-hmm. small town and they had some chickens and like, they weren't wealthy by any means, but just by the nature of being a shop owner in a small town, like more than some of the folks around them. Sure. Uh, my grandfather grew up, you know, 10 or 20 miles away um, and grew up the son of a sharecropper. Mm. Um, and, you know, we would drive around. He'd show me the houses in which he lived, um, sometimes sharing um, a house with a black family. Uh, there's, you know, a house with no plumbing, a house with no with dirt floors, all these things that he grew yeah. up in. Um, and they... Even as a child, I mean, I didn't really notice then, but as I've reflected on it, especially as I've gotten older in the last few years in particular, as I think our whole country has reflected on some of these things more, realizing, um, you know, seeing some of their comments and the way that they related to people of other races um, being different just from their own upbringing. I I mean, they never talked about it between themselves, not that I'm aware of, Um, certainly not. It wasn't like, you know, Mary, you're racist. Like that wasn't right. part of the conversation. <laughs> right. But um, but thinking about like, oh, yeah, your lived experience matters a great deal Absolutely. about this. And um, I don't necessarily mean anything, you know, diminishing against my grandmother. But I do think that my grandfather was um, had a different uh, element of grace in him because of his experience. Yeah. I, it, he wasn't perfect by any means either. But it was um, – I've thought about that a lot in the last few years about – how our own lived experience affects our perception of equity in the world and fairness and all of that. Absolutely. Um, And also um, how we, it shapes not our our own experience, but how we talk about it, right? Micah's Mm -hmm. point that words have meaning, they matter. um, And how we talk about that, whether it's on cable news, whether it's on a podcast here, whether Mm -hmm. it's, um, to your kids, right? Comments that you make in the front seat of the car, not thinking that your grandkids in the back seat are really listening, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things. It all matters and kind of gets absorbed. Um, and we should be in the spirit of always being more awakened to truth and equity. Like we should be conscientious about what it is we say and how that affects, how that comes out of our mouth and how that affects the perceptions the growth of those around us of all ages Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well um 
to kind of wrap up here. Um, this has been great. Um, Sunshine, thank you for being here. Thanks for having, having me. This. Is there, do you have any um, parting words of wisdom, comments, advice, guidance for our listeners about um, how they go about the world in a, you know, from a public health context, from a equity context, whatever you want to share? Yeah, you know, from an equity context. Um, I think one of the big things is, especially in our state right now, to resist the urge to embrace apathy, right? Um, sometimes it just can feel so overwhelming, um, but that we continue to vote, we continue to make our voice heard, we make sure that we advocate. And then I think going back to the we haven't arrived, so reading, learning, listening. As white people, we really need to listen. I think great opportunities to do that without burdening um, our communities that are marginalized are to follow individuals on social media and read their post, um, but not expect free edu- right not um, not expecting our family members and friends and colleagues to educate us um, who are black or who are trans or whatever issue we're talking about right but we can follow individuals who are putting their information out there and then resisting the urge as white people to center ourselves in the conversation and um, ask the questions or redirect the conversation, right, to make it all about us. I think getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, right, because of change, because lifelong learning is, it's an uncomfortable place to be. But you said earlier, Andy, we get more comfortable, right? Or there is comfort in knowing that change is inevitable mm-hmm. if we embrace it. And then getting, um, getting comfortable with not being perfect, that we're going to make mistakes if we do any kind of equity work um, and resisting that urge mm-hmm. to be defensive about it, apologizing, moving forward. Guilt doesn't do anybody any good. Um, the last thing is, I think, when we think about there's no arrived, there's no arrived for us. There's also no arrived for the United States mm-hmm. or Oklahoma. And we have not yet lived into our ideals. And we probably won't have lived into our ideals by the time they're putting our headstones up. But we have a time and a purpose to move things forward, to leave things better than we found them when we go. And I think um, that's what helps me resist the apathy of, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes just feeling like, oh, my, you know, what's going on? And bury head in the sand that um, – there's no arrived for me and there's no arrived for the places that I'm in yeah. either. And so to just keep doing the work of moving things forward. Yeah. And thank y'all for the work that you do with let's fix this. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, listeners, uh, Dr. Cowan was, has been a long time volunteer. You came to one of our first capital days in 2019. I know, cause I, we have yeah. a photo of you. Um, and so when Micah uh, said that she was going to invite you, I was like, I remember this person. Let me go look it up. And I went through all the pictures and I was like, I knew it. Yeah, yeah. So. We've brought we've brought students a few times. That's always I love it because y'all are nonprofit, nonpartisan, and I think it's such a great way of bringing students because we talk obviously public health, we talk about a lot of issues, but we also talk about the fact that we're not concerned with how things get politicized. We're not gonna mm-hmm. let that affect what what's going on in the classroom. We're mm-hmm. going to look at the research. We're going to look at best practices. Mm-hmm. And we'll never, ever, ever tell students how to vote. We will encourage those who can vote to vote, yeah. but never how, right? And so what I love about partnering for your events is students are able to come. They are able to bring a topic that they want to talk to a legislator mm-hmm. about. 
and um, have the direction and training on doing that. But um, it's not they're not being told what that particular issue needs to be. And so I absolutely love that about the work that y'all do. That's one of my favorite parts of doing like an advocacy training. And I just did one uh, last week, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's sitting down and like helping people work through what to say. And it's like, well, let's start with what do you care about most? And everyone's eyes get real big of like, I don't even know where to start. It's like, okay, well, Mm -hmm. let's start there. Let's just brainstorm a list of things that you care about. And which one do you want to talk about today? Because I guarantee Mm -hmm. there's probably... You know, a long list. You can just pick one or two. Absolutely. Um, but we'll do some messaging around that. Mm-hmm. And when you when people feel overwhelmed, you start kind of priming them with like, do you care about roads, schools, healthcare? Like, what what are the things yeah. that motivate you that you care about the most? Um, maybe it's what you do for a living. Maybe it's not. Uh, and then helping people understand how everything that you care about in life. Um, is somehow connected to public policy. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, Scott, my co-host, who's not here today, and I both have uh, kind of been getting into woodworking more the last couple of years. And um, we will joke about, you know, the dream is to like go off and, you know, be Ron Swanson, live in the woods and like do woodworking. <laughs> um, and so, so something you might think that like that is disconnected from public policy and it's not, right? There's the supply chain you still have to pay for wood or tools. All this stuff is connected. Art is political. All of yeah. this stuff is um, is somehow related. Taxes, everything, right? Healthcare, it all matters. Um, and there's a place for everybody to be involved in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, there's a place for you to be involved too. Uh, Micah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Cowan, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, As a reminder, there is an election coming up on April 4th. Um, It is incredibly important you vote. There's an election almost everywhere. If you live in Oklahoma County in particular, everyone's got an election. Some of you might have more than one race, but everybody has county clerk. That's on everyone's ballot. Um, Edmonds voting for mayor. Harrah's voting for mayor. There's lots of uh, municipal elections as well. Um, If you live outside Oklahoma County, I haven't had a chance to read the full list of all the elections, but there's a bunch, a ton of municipal city council races, mayor's races, that kind of stuff. You can go to the election board and take a look at that. Um, We are going to have some opportunities for volunteers to get involved before the April 4th election, phone banking, text banking, even knocking doors if you want to do that. Um, That is a tremendously impactful way to reach voters. We want to try to boost turnout because... Uh, it was way too low. In February, turnout was 9%. Mm-hmm. Turnout this past week for state question A20 was only 25%. That was a statewide election. Um, that is, you know, inadequate and does not give us a good representation of what Oklahomans want, nor does it tell us the direction that we're headed. So um, please uh, send us an email. You can email podcast at letsfixthis.org um, or you can go to our website, letsfixthis.org and sign up to volunteer there. We'll be sending out information in the next uh, week or so. All right. On that note, don't forget that decisions are made by those who show up and find ways to show up in your community this week. Have a good week.